This is the Ignition Show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to or welcome back to our podcast. My name is Chris Jansen, host of the Ignition Show, where our aim is to create meaningful conversations with switched on people about things that matter, matter in the pursuit of your potential and igniting the flame within you to live your best and full life. Over the past 10 years, the field of neuroscience has exploded into the mainstream. Advances in technology are allowing us, or more accurately, allowing really cool scientists to see inside of our live active brains and apply that data to real life. From understanding afflictions such as depression and anxiety, to how to build the mental muscles of focus, determination, and grit, science gives us objective insight into how to behave more aligned to our ideals and goals. In this episode, we're joined by one of those really cool, very smart, and uber-practical scientists. Lucas Miller graduated top of his class at UC Berkeley and shares with us tons of immediately usable facts about habits and how to become more of the person you want to become. As you're listening to this, I suggest you think of one area of your life where you want to improve. Perhaps that's your health, your, your diet, your work, your, how you're approaching your job or career, or just maybe how to manage your day-to-day life. Think of that area, grab a pen and paper, and take notes from Lucas's masterclass on what it takes to change behavior and make it stick. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. On today's show, we're sitting down with Lucas Miller, a cognitive scientist from the University of California at Berkeley, author of Beyond Brilliance, The Blueprint for Learning Anything, a book about the science of learning and behavior change. And Lucas is also a lecturer at the UC Berkeley Haas School of Business, where he teaches executives how to improve their work habits and be more effective. Lucas, welcome to the Ignition Show. Thanks, Chris. How are you doing today? Pretty good. How about yourself? Very good, thanks. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Oh, yeah, me too. It's a, it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and I, I think we're going to jump into some fun stuff today. Great, great. You know, I, I was thinking about it, you know, at the time of this recording, we're in February, still early in the year. But statistics would say that the vast majority of people who were determined to make some changes at the start of this year are already off track. They've given up or perhaps even just forgotten what they wanted. Why, why is our success rate with making changes so bad and how do we get it so wrong? That's a, that's a very timely point. It's sort of that time of year where gym memberships yeah. pretty much sell uh, off the shelves and Everything is crowded for two, three weeks, and, and now eventually it goes back to a steady state of the, the people who have already uh, made that a part of their lives, and, and they're just going forward with their existing habits. Uh, but the, the main question is really, uh, why do habit changes or our attempts to, to change ourselves fail? Yes. And I can, I can think off the top of my head, three, four, now five main reasons why those changes fail. The first is, this is a, a common human flaw, is trying to take on too much at once. So it's very common, start of the year, you're reflecting on you know, what went well, what didn't, what you want to change to go, okay, I know where I need to improve. Here are the 10 things I'm going to start doing tomorrow. And realistically, whenever you're trying to go from a state to a new state, if you try to introduce a lot of change, it's going to fail. It's too big of a change. Uh, so that's the first one. The second is a lot of people try to go from, let's just use exercise as an example. A lot of people try to go from not 
exercising at all to five to six days a week. A huge jump, right? They try to go from nothing to big or from uh, a small little habit to something that would make it seem like it's a huge part of their lives. And unfortunately, change just doesn't happen that quickly. Uh, another one I would say, and this is something I, I'm sure we're going to dive into deeper, is they don't change the environment that they're in. So, for example, let's say somebody is trying to quit smoking. Uh, it's a, a common change that people commit to around the new year. Uh, that's going to be very hard to do if you're in an environment, maybe your family or your friends or loved ones are smokers, and you live in an environment where cigarettes are always available. Uh, it'd be much easier to actually commit to that, that new lifestyle of, of not smoking if you lived in a place where other people didn't smoke. You had people who supported you. You had people who could hold you accountable to this, this new you, this new way of, of being. Uh, and then the last one I would say is a lot of people have a hesitation to commit to something small. Like they think that, oh, if it's, if it's a small change, it doesn't matter, right? It, it doesn't matter uh, that I'm going from zero days at the gym per week to one day. But in reality, going from zero to one is an infinite improvement. You're going from nothing to something. And that's absolutely meaningful. And once you've developed that small habit, you're going from nothing to something, then you can always add a little bit more later. You can, you can take that existing habit that you've now created and you can ratchet it up or optimize it or, or continue to change it in the direction that you want to go. Uh, so just off the top of my head, those are the main reasons that I think behavior change efforts fail. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not to say that, you know, maybe you've committed to something or, or too many things at the start of the year and, and you're off track on most or potentially all of them that you can't get back on track quickly by employing some, some key principles that we know from science uh, help with, with forming new habits and, and sticking to them. Um, yeah, those, those are all, those are all great points. And I, and uh, I absolutely agree with those. Before we dive into you know, how to some of those principles around change or, or um, how to make making create new habits, I want to spend a little time talking about these these uh, four items that you identified here. Uh, the first thing you had was taking on too much at once, or going from not at all to going all in. And what would you say about you know I work you know, both of us have been exposed to what you might call high achievers, you know very, people who are very successful in their careers very successful in life who are used to maybe taking on big challenges and really going for it. What would you say to someone who maybe has a history or a track record of being a high achiever and you know, maybe they're all fired up. Maybe they've got lots of great motivation they're, they, they say they're saying all the right things that they really want to make this change or they really want to go after this new way of uh, behaving this year or taking on this big goal. And they want to go all in. They want to change five things at once. Mm -hmm. What do you, how do you, how do you help someone? I don't know. Maybe you don't. What, what will be your approach to someone like that? Do you, do you still need to make them break it down or what's been your experience? Uh, the first thing is I would ask if 
they have a history of being able to successfully change five things at once. Uh, some people can. Some people are ruthless about doing an annual review and identifying all the things that they need to fix or improve or stop doing, and then they just execute. They're machines. And, and there's a few people like that. Most of us fall into the camp of trying to take on too much at once. So that's number one. Does this person, do, do you have a history of being able to tackle that? Because that gives you data to basically prove to yourself how much you can tackle at one time. Uh, the second is just having a candid conversation around, I know you want to do all these things at once, but the, the more you spread around the, uh, the jam, let's say on a piece of bread, the thinner it gets, right? Yeah. If you're trying to expend self-control and willpower in a bunch of different directions, it necessarily is going to be thinner in each of those directions. So while it is still possible that you might hit the goal, you're much less likely to because there's less focus. And usually from there, people will go, okay, there's some must-haves and then there's some nice-to-haves, right? Three, four, five are nice-to-haves. It would be incredible if I could add those on, but realistically, they're not that high priority. And once I hit one and two, I can move on and, and tackle three, four, and five after. I can always do the higher ones, the higher priority ones first, and then it's not like the other ones are going away. No, I, I like what you said there. and It to totally resonates with me, both in terms of the do I have a history? And there's been many times for me where I feel like, yes, I have a history of really tackling a big, some big things at once. But the, the, the counterpunch of having a, a candid conversation of um, is now the time to be able to tackle five at once, that one, uh, that one definitely resonated with me as well. What I really like about what you said in there was this – or what you touched on was self-control and willpower. What's – how do you – how do we wrap our heads around – both what is the difference between, let's say, self-control, willpower, or are they the same thing? And what's the role of self-control and willpower in making changes? So there's a lot of debate around are they different concepts? Are they, are they only different in, in certain contexts? Uh, here's the way I look at it. Uh, self-control is something that you need to exert when you secretly want to do something but then your brain overrides and says, no, don't do that. It's not in your best interest. It's almost like when the emotional side of your brain really gravitates towards something and then it almost gets there and your logical side kicks in and says, hold up. Is this actually in line with our goals, our priorities? Do you really want to do this? Um, willpower is, is often lumped into the same camp. Um, but I consider willpower more as a, as a broader ability to just do stuff. Uh, so that's, that's willpower to get a task done. That's willpower to go on a long run. That's almost your, your energy reserve uh, versus self-control, which is a little bit more around like preventing yourself from doing the things that you may want to do uh, but no, aren't actually great for you in the long term. So, is it true that is it true that people just, if they had a you know quote unquote, you hear the people say this all the time, right? If I just had a bit more willpower, I would have stuck with that. If I just had a bit more willpower, I would 
stop eating the chocolate or or whatever it may be, or I would get up in the morning and do my exercise. Is it is it a matter of just not having enough? Are some people gifted with more willpower than others? <laughs> I'm so glad you brought this up. Uh, this this is really interesting because let's let's take two examples. So we have someone who uh, they they really like soda. Uh, it's just a, a pleasure of theirs. They get a lot out of it. And then you have someone who would never think of drinking soda. They're an uh, endurance athlete, very clean, very healthy. Uh, for these two people, the amount of willpower required to not drink soda is very, very different. Right? The amount of self-control yes. they have to exert to, to not engage in that behavior. For the person who likes soda, they have to really, really force themselves to not drink it because they secretly want to. For someone who is an endurance athlete, they don't have to exert anything. That soda is associated with pain. Pain is maybe a strong word, but it's, it has a negative association as opposed to a positive association. And, and throughout life, uh, by virtue of how we grew up and, and what our parents told us and our experiences, we have formed associations, uh, both positive and negative associations, towards all sorts of things in the world. Uh, so I think the question is not about do I need more willpower, it's do I have a positive association with this, in which case it's going to require self-control to abstain from it, uh, or do I have a negative association with it already, in which case it's easy for me. Mm. Uh, that, that's where the under-the-hood work comes in, where you, you start to think critically about why it's so difficult. I, I can give you another example. Uh, so let's, let's take two people who say one is male. He's a little bit shyer. He's a little bit more reserved and, and not confident in front of other people. You take this guy and you send him to Paris, uh, where French people are stereotypically rude and, and pretty in your face. And this guy might conclude that Paris is not that great of a place. People are rude. There's nothing interesting there. It's, it's not worth going. Uh, so he has a negative association that's uh, built up uh, with that place. And you yeah. take another person. Some, some young female who's really charismatic. She likes meeting new people. She's always uh, open to new experiences. And you send her to Paris. And first day there, she meets someone who's really interesting and tours her around. And from there, she has a great time. And it just snowballs from there. So yeah. two, two very different people get exposed to the same thing. And they have a very different experience and a very different association that uh, is the result of that. And, and that's really what happens all through life. Uh, we, we get exposed to things, and depending on how it works out, we either put them in the positive camp or the negative camp. And that's where a lot of self-limiting beliefs lie, where even though we, we know that we should you know, go out and meet new people or we should go out and do the things that are a little bit scary for us or make us uncomfortable. Yep. Uh, 
they're in the negative camp, and it, it requires uh, a lot of a lot of willpower to actually force yourself to go and do them. Yeah, and there's no no doubt when you talk about a lot of behavior change that if certainly for something that people are. Um, They've been trying to make a change for a while or they certainly haven't been as, as consistent on follow through as they would like to. It's so important to start looking at what are the underlying beliefs because it's the beliefs that usually hold in, hold our the beliefs or the stories that we have that hold our old behaviors in, in place. Always, you, always. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and you mentioned in there as well, uh, I'm kind of fascinated around this idea of, of uh, hitting pain points in order to make change. I was in a, in a workshop recently with a corporation and one of the members uh, of the of the group said that he needs to ex- he needs to get to a point of pain, like not not necessarily physical pain, but pain that could be you know frustration or really anger or a real big disappointment or whatever it might be. He needs to kind of get angry at himself for him to make a change. And I know you're, a, you're Lucas. You're a big fan of Ray Dalio's book Principles, and in one of the principles mm-hmm. that, that Ray talks about is pain plus reflection equals progress. Do you think we need to get to a point of pain before we can make change, or before big changes need to happen? What's the role of pain in making change? I think it totally depends on the magnitude of the change. So, for small things like I want to start brushing my teeth. No pain is involved, right? It's something you know is good for you. It's just about reminding yourself to do it, making sure it's accessible, and, and then you can make that change pretty quickly. You're, for something, you're speak, speaking like a guy who doesn't have a four-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sure there's some parents listening to this would say there's a lot of pain for the kids around brushing. But anyway, go ahead. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> true, true. Uh, in any case, so that, that's a small magnitude change. No pain is required. You, you figure out what you need to change and then you do it. And usually there are no hiccups. For something that is significant, where you're, you're changing your operating system, you're changing the way you go about life, the, the way you work, the, the way you approach your relationship. For something that is that big, uh, usually some kind of pain is required because change is hard. It's, it's hard enough even when you're motivated. And we're rarely in circumstances where it's required. So until something, something you're doing repeatedly causes mistakes and it repeatedly causes bad feelings or anger or something like that, a lot of people will not make the necessary efforts to, to change because there's, just, there's a lot of opportunity costs associated with doing something big like that, right? It's, it's a lot of time invested in how do I actually do this? Often you have to get other people on board to support you. Uh, I have met very, very few people who can make big changes uh, just off the, off the top of their head. And, and the, the main reason for that, I think, is because in order to, to make a fundamental change like that, there needs to be a reason behind it. Uh, people don't just uproot their, their way of life for no reason. And a big reason is that it's caused pain. I mean, at a fundamental level as humans, we are pleasure-seeking, pain-avoiding. And so when, when there's enough pain, where there, when there are enough mistakes that have built up over time, eventually that's, that's too much for people. They 
absolutely just can't keep doing what they're doing because the opportunity cost of not changing is so high. Yes. Yes, and I, I can relate to that as well. Some of the big changes I've made in my life came not necessarily out of pain in the moment or frustration or anger or failures or, or mistakes, but more so the pain of not living up to what I felt was my potential, the pain of not living up to the having creating the life or experiences that I want to have. So finally getting to a point of wanting to make a decision to do this now um, <clears throat> was a big part of that. So I, I absolutely agree that there's, especially I, I really appreciate your point around fundamental changes. There's always going to be a root a root reason and some sort of pain associated with that or, or potential fear of loss in some way. Um, and, and on that line, line as well is that, you know, there's, of course, there's an adage that says if you're not failing, then you're really not pushing the limits of what's possible. And failure is a hard thing for many people to wrap their heads around in terms of needing to have failure as a sense of progress or if that failure is good or some people would argue that failure is necessary if you're really trying to achieve big success and, and of course there's lots of very successful people in life whether they're celebrities or business people or even athletes saying when they look back on their failures that's where they had the greatest learning so i think we can buy into that intellectually but what would you say what would you advise someone who's like i don't really want to fail i see if if i ex- start to label myself as failing, I become a failure and I don't want to feel like that. So I got to keep going. And they, maybe they, they gloss over some of the setbacks. What would your advice be to someone like that? I would ask them, what do you want more? Do you want to succeed or do you want to avoid failing? Mm-hmm. Uh, because in order to succeed, failure is absolutely necessary. There are very few people who can succeed at anything meaningful without making mistakes. Because if you could succeed without making mistakes, then it would be super easy. There would be a five-step checklist associated with it and everybody would be doing what everybody would be doing it. Uh, Built into the definition of success is that it's a non-average result, that it's it's hard to obtain. Otherwise, if, if everyone was successful, we'd need to redefine our definition. Uh, so with, with failure, you often have to do some, some belief work around, I I totally understand it. This makes you uncomfortable. You're worried about how this is going to make you look in front of your peers or your parents or, or whoever else you care about if you fail. But fundamentally, this is a step that you have to take if you want to get to where you want to go three years, five years, 10 years down the road. So which one matters more? And if the answer is not the long-term success, then you'll find the same pattern of avoiding those situations that make you feel uncomfortable or, or stretch your, your current abilities, and you'll never get to where you want to go. And I actually, I wanted to, if, if we could backtrack to the, the original uh, the last question we were talking about around pain, uh, I think something something else that's important to note is humans are very, very good at rationalizing our behavior and making excuses. Uh, and so when we talk about how much pain or, or is pain required to make a big change, it's, it's really important to think about uh, time scales. And, and what I mean by that is there are three major time scales. There's the past, 
who you were, what you've done in the past. There's the present, who you are now and what you're doing now. And the future, who you are going to become and, and what you're going to do years down the road. And with habits, uh, you can feel pain in each of those three time scales, right? You can feel pain in the past, right? This behavior that I'm doing or this behavior that I'm not doing has caused me so much pain in the past. It's caused me to not have opportunities that I wanted to have or any number of, of negative effects. You can also analyze pain from the present, right? What is doing this behavior or not doing this behavior costing me in the present? Uh, for, for somebody who is, let's say, nervous about dating, they're, they're nervous about going out and meeting new people, uh, not going out is causing them pain in the present because they're not finding anyone who can be a companion or find someone who they can have fun with. Uh, and then there's the future. There's pain in the future, which is if I continue to do this behavior or I continue to not do this behavior, what's this going to cost me in the future? What's this going to prevent me from getting a month down the road, a year down the road, and so on? And when you force people, or when you go through this process of assessing the pain that some kind of behavior has caused in each of these three timescales, it makes it way more likely that people will change because you're looking at the data right there. This is not just something that is causing a minor inconvenience in the present once in a while. It's not something that just caused you pain in the past, uh, but it's no longer an issue. Uh, you can see very, very clearly that this is affecting who you were, who you are now, and it's going to keep affecting you unless you actually figure out a way to tackle this problem. I'm so I'm so glad you said that. I absolutely agree with that. One thing I really liked about what you said there was you you, you may have kind of stumbled on the word and and kind of skimmed over it, but what you said when you when you force people to look at that, and I actually think sometimes you do need to force people, or sometimes you need to force yourself to really look at that. And as you say, when you stack those reasons, it's really hard to ignore all the reasons you can list out for the pain that happened in the past, present, and the future. And I think that's actually a very empowering way, even though you are maybe focusing on the negative side, but it's a very empowering way to give you an extra level of clarity. Clarity often leads to motivation, and that leads to momentum to want to make those changes. So I'm really glad you said that. And would it be, just building on that, would it be, is it oversimplifying it, or perhaps you have a, you have a better way of explaining this, you know, the simple truth, I believe, that our brains are really wired for survival, not for thriving, not for actively seeking happiness or fulfillment or growth. They really are designed for a survival, which part of survival is avoiding threats or avoiding pain or moving away from pain. So stacking the past, present, and future pains, is that, is that aligned to that or would you see it slightly differently? I think that's correct. At a fundamental level, we are still the same creatures we were back when we lived in small groups and there were serious threats of tigers coming to the village or people invading from a nearby tribe. We are still people who fundamentally wake up each day and, and we're, whether we're aware of it or not, running calculations on 
how much pleasure is this going to give me if it's over a certain threshold, do it. How much pain is this going to give me if it's not so bad? Okay, I can handle it. Uh, that's, that's built into our genes. That's how we survive and it's how we provide for our families and it's how we, we keep moving forward. A lot of the concepts that would fall more in the, in the thriving camp, happiness and fulfillment and meaning, a lot of these words have, I hesitate to say made up, but they're, they're newer concepts. Mm-hmm. The, the conversation around happiness and well-being and all these, all these other words has really sprung up in the last 20, 30 years. A, a lot of people weren't thinking about uh, optimizing for these types of things. So it's, it's definitely a, a function of now we live in a society where our basic needs are for the most part covered. Yes. And we can, we can think about higher level needs that we might have yes. as opposed to just the, the basics. But uh, yeah, the, the operating system that we have on a day-to-day basis is still very simple and, and it can trip us up when we're, when we're thinking about how do we actually make sure we're, we're doing the things that are best for us in the long term as, a, as opposed to the short-term oriented machinery that we have. Yeah. Well said, well said, you know, I've, I've read that you've, uh, you've said that, you know, sometimes you don't need to learn anything new. You just have to unlearn. You have to unlearn what you think, you know, and unlearning is a, is a concept I'm fascinated by. Uh, but how do you unlearn something? That seems like a big mountain to climb. <laughs> I, I think, uh, that, that reminds me, I think it's a Mark Twain quote where it's, it ain't the things you know that get you in trouble. It's the things you know that, I don't know. Let me start that over. It, it ain't the things you don't know that get you in trouble. It's the things you know that just ain't so. Mm. Uh, so these are the types of things that we've learned that we take as sacred, that are, that are facts in our minds, but fundamentally might be wrong or, or might not be giving us the, the results that we want. Uh, and so to your point about how do we unlearn, uh, it's often very difficult to do this alone unless you know, you've identified that this is something you want to change. There's a lot of pain associated and you, you go through a very logical process of trying to figure out why you're doing the things you're doing or why you're not doing the things you should be doing. Uh, the best strategy I've found is take someone who knows you well but can actually give information and, and give a perspective that's not your own and try to work the problem out with them. Because the second you put out the assumptions that you're operating under and, and the things you hold is true and you put those out in front of another smart human who – can reason well that this is uh, something Ray Dalio would would definitely uh, approve of as part of his stress testing process. Once you do that, uh, it's often the case that that person will find something you don't, or or shed light on something that you may have underplayed or or may have discounted as totally untrue. And then from there, you can decide: Did I miss something? Am I operating under uh, 
uh, false assumption. Is my information old or outdated? Do I need to update certain mental models? Do I need to go maybe learn something new to take advantage of, of what I've just learned? Uh, that's great. And let me just see play this back to make sure I, I got that right because I think this is something fascinating. This idea of unlearning. And if I'm if I'm right, am I, is it correct to say that really what that pro, if I want to call it a process of unlearning something is? I love what you're saying of getting someone else who can bring maybe an objective perspective, but someone you trust enough to know that they have got your best interest at mind. But really, with that that conversation or that process you're working through is to to surface perhaps the assumptions you might be making or how you are making rationalizations or maybe even excuses and is the strategy as could would it be accurate to say the strategy is to surface what assumptions or how you might be rationalizing or what the story is or what your interpretation is of what needs what needs to happen here and really what you're doing is you're poking holes in it you're trying to weakening that argument that you've been holding on to using someone else with a bit different perspective but if you can weaken that argument or poke holes in it, that opens up your mind to see that there might be an alternative. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I think that's correct. First, you, you need to actually make explicit what knowledge you have inside of you. Before that, it's, it's futile to try to unlearn something or learn something because you, you don't even really know what you're working with. But once, once you get that on the table and you – you understand, okay, I've, I've always thought that the way to make money was X, Y, and Z. And now we live in a, in a new time where there's the internet and there's all sorts of other ways. Uh, now there's some tension. You have a couple other people in the room, maybe some younger people who can look at those assumptions and, and tell you, well, while that used to be true, while you were, you were totally correct and that experience can still be used to, to make money in ways X, Y, Z. Things have changed and there's new ways of, of tackling the same issue and they can, they can provide a perspective that you might not have, have gotten uh, just operating under your old ways. I think that's a great, great piece of very practical advice of make explicit what knowledge you have, whether that's making a list yourself or writing it down or journaling about it or certainly engaging other people. I think that's a great way to start that transition of unlearning something. I want to go back to actually um, one of the initial principles you identified. And you said that, that oftentimes people hesitate to commit to small changes. And what, was, what caught my attention in there was the word hesitate. Why do we hesitate to make small changes and why is that so, so important? Well, I think in, in short, it's because people assume that they won't actually make a difference. So to go back to the, the workout example, uh, going from zero days of the week to, to one day of the week, well, a lot of people might say, well, one day a week doesn't matter. That's not going to give me any results and I'm not going to go through the process of getting a membership and going there just to do exercise once a week. So uh, the fundamental assumption is that a small change is not worth the investment up front. And we also live in a society where small changes don't get glorified. You know, you don't, you don't see the news reporting on like 
this company did this thing and it led to a 1% improvement. Right. Right? right. Nobody would ever read that. It's always right. this accelerated growth 10x or this led to a complete unraveling of the company. It's always extremes. It's always massive impact, either positive or negative. Uh, and and that's, the, that's the culture that we live in because the, the normal stuff, the, the actual realities of life, they're not, even though they may be meaningful, they're not interesting enough to grab attention like that. So everyone feels like in order to do anything, it has to be truly momentous and, and worthy of attention uh, and worth posting on social media about and worth telling people about. But in reality, big change is the result of small changes that add up. You don't go from zero to big, you go from zero to small and then a little bit bigger and then eventually big. Yeah, I absolutely agree with all of that. Absolutely agree. Uh, and building on that, I want to turn turn the conversation to talking about habits. Um, you know, it's one of the most common questions I get is people want to create new habits. Maybe they're stuck in some old habits. So again, let, let, where would you start? If someone came to you and said, hey, Lucas, I really want to um, make this change. Here's the habit I want to create. Here's the old habit I want to want to break. Where, where do you begin? Do you, do you just start with trying to do something new, fighting, fighting against old habits? Or do you, do you need to break, it, break the old habit first? How do you stop old habits? A lot of questions around there. Where, where would your starting point be? Sure, sure. First, again, I would ask if the person has a history of trying to change this particular habit. Because if, if a person has a history, either they've tried to do it many times before and they were unsuccessful or they tried to break a habit many times before and they were unsuccessful. There's usually something deeper there. Uh, so that's, that's the first thing. What are you, what are you actually trying to change? And is this something that has always been a, a desire, always been a, a potential pain point, or is this something new that you, you just read about and are, are curious to try? And, and the reason I say that is because, and this is the, the number one thing I think most people overlook when it comes to habit change, is habits start with beliefs. So we're going around each day and we, we execute a bunch of behaviors and those are a result of the things that we believe, the, the concept that we have of who we are. And... What I mean by that is if you believe that you're an athlete, right, that's, that's a part of who you are, that's, that's a near and dear description of yourself, then you're going to execute a bunch of habits in line with that identity. You're going to watch what you eat. You're going to train frequently. You're going to prioritize sleep. You're going to make sure that your body's working so you can perform. Uh, and so this is an example where who you are determines what you do. And I think it's a, a really, really important and fundamentally overlooked connection because most people, when they, when they try to change habits, they just try to change what they do. They try to go, okay, here's the behavior that I, I currently have or the behavior I currently don't have and here's the new one I want to have. 
and they just say, okay, I'm going to start doing it or I'm going to stop doing it, but they don't change who they actually are. So they have to fight each time they're faced with, do I do this? Do I not do this? Mm. You have to fight an old identity, mm. an old version of themselves that may not be in line with the habit that they're trying to create. Um, and so that all these things usually start with why, because it's, it's very easy to say, I want to start doing all these things, but if you don't have a compelling reason and if it's not in line with who you believe you are, it's going to be just clawing tooth and nail to try and actually get it done. You're going to be exerting a lot of self-control to execute that behavior. So on that note then, how, do you, how does someone change their identity or change who they think they are? Where would, they, where would you start with that? You have to lie to yourself. <laughs> uh, to be honest, is it a fake it till you it, make it kind of situation? It it is a fake it till you make it type of thing. Uh, in some cases, it's easier. For example, some changes are very in line with a slightly modified version of yourself. For example. Let's say you're, you're generally the type of person who prioritizes long-term health and you like to be, uh, you know, you like to exercise and you like to watch what you eat. You're not extreme, but you're, you're generally the type of person who prioritizes that. And you learn uh, that based on your ancestry, your Northern European, that the ketogenic diet might be good for having higher energy and for feeling better on a daily basis. It might not be that difficult to change your habits because you're already more in the camp of prioritizing long-term health and you've mm -hmm. now just learned something new mm -hmm. that it's a new habit, but it's still aligned versus trying to do a complete reversal where, to be honest, for five or ten years, you didn't do the thing that you want to do or you, you didn't value the thing that you want to value now. And you have no reason to believe yourself that it's a part of your identity. Uh, but it's a lot easier to act yourself into a new way of thinking than to think yourself into a new way of acting. Yes. Because in the, in the second camp... It ends up just being a lot of thinking and no acting. Yes. And in the first camp, the first couple of times are, are tough. But once you've done something, if you've done something repeatedly, it's very hard to lie to yourself and say, I'm not the type of person who does that thing because you've done it a bunch. There's, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance there. So, yeah, in short, you have to lie to yourself if it's a significant change and, and eventually – by doing it, you will reinforce this new identity and eventually it will become real. Well, and I, and I agree with this, absolutely agree with the sentiment there that, um, well, you know, some people may, uh, may embrace the idea of lying to themselves. Some people might find some resistance to that idea. I think the real point is to recognize, just like we talked about with rationalizing and having assumptions and making excuses, 
Our mind is always playing tricks on us. Our mind is always playing games with us, telling us we can't change, telling us we can't do this, telling us it's, success is meant for someone else, which is all lies because we absolutely have the potential to achieve amazing things. And sometimes we need to play games back. We need to adopt a different uh, mentality, a different mental model of who we are. And whether it's faking it till you make it or, or as you say, acting yourself into a new way of thinking, just putting yourself out there, put the effort in to try to make that change. I think another great strategy that works for a lot of people as well is thinking of a role model that you have. You know, someone who maybe has that success or that outcome that you're all, you, you want to have. And, and literally thinking about putting yourself in their shoes. And think about, well, what would they say in this situation? How would they approach the situation? What kind of daily commitment do they have to themselves? What do they believe to make that change? And sometimes putting yourself, taking your, like a bit of an out-of-body experience, putting yourself into someone else's way of thinking can be also a great way to act yourself into a new way of thinking and a new identity. I love that. I love that. Mm. Definitely. So, so coming, so with that being said, which I think is a fantastic starting point in terms of making these changes and habits, um, I guess coming back to one question is to what extent do you need to break, break, do you need to break old habits? Can you just stop old habits and turn your attention to something new? What would you say there? Uh, so I know the prevailing sentiment is that you can't break old habits you can only replace them with a different habit. That's something that you hear a lot. I totally disagree. I've seen plenty of examples of people who just stop cold turkey. I think the only way to do that, though, is when there's enough pain and there's enough of a why and you've gone through some work of changing your identity and telling yourself that, I can't do this anymore. I need to be a different type of person that there's just that epiphany and, and it happens. And although it's rare and there's a lot of preconditions, it's, it's totally not impossible for people to break things out of thin air. Yeah, no, I, I do agree with that as well. I do agree with that. And so maybe the, maybe the, uh, uh, another ultimate or very common question around habits is how long does it take to form a new habit? Lucas, if I want to make a change, how long do I have to try before I just don't have to, I can stop thinking about it? <laughs> uh, I wish there was an easy answer. You hear a lot of answers like 21, 21, days, 21 days, 60, yeah. yeah, 66 days. Unfortunately, none of those is, is actually backed by, rigorous experiments or enough uh enough people to to make it something i'd feel comfortable with saying if you just do this for 50 days then it's set in stone and, and you're forever a different type of person what i can promise is that each time you execute a habit it will be easier than the last mm. so depending on how motivated you are and your genetics and, and a number of other factors, it might take you 66 days versus somebody else. It might take them 21 days. But in that process of going from the old you to the new you, each time will get easier because you're slowly moving this behavior from the part of your brain that has to do a lot of thinking it has to assess each time, 
do I really want to do this? Is there a big enough payoff? It slowly moves the habit from the thinking part to the more reward-oriented part, which makes that behavior automatic. Or it's now just, we already know what reward this is going to give us, and let's just go and do it. And it's, it's now a part of, of who you are. Yeah. And, and for those people who are, want to, uh, I suppose, accelerate success or accelerate the adoption of habits or just want to get a kind of exponential returns in their behavior changes, are there certain habits that are, that are the, the best habits that they should focus on, maybe providing that foundation? Or are there some habits that have maybe compounding benefits that people could be, should be aware of? Uh, absolutely. If, if you're talking about habits, it's, it's very easy to opt for, I want to have as many habits as possible, right? I'm going to be the type of person who wakes up every day at 6 a.m., go for a 10-minute walk, eat this kind of breakfast. I want, I want all the habits. But in reality, given how difficult it is to form habits, we can only have so many at a time. And so it, it pays to think of, well, which ones are actually going to give me the biggest return? Which ones are going to make other habits easier to execute? That's a big one. And I can, I can share the ones that I found for me, or I call them keystone habits, where if I do these, they make all the other habits or all the other behaviors I might want to do easier. And then, and then perhaps you can share the, the ones that you've found for yourself over time uh, that the three biggest ones for me are sleep. Number one, if I don't get eight hours of sleep, I'm pretty much useless. Uh, the second is actually making a plan for my day, knowing before I jump into things, what are the top three things that I want to finish by day's end? So I have a direction versus just jumping in and depending on what's going on that day or what I feel like doing, uh, choosing tasks like that. And then the third one is making sure that I'm, I'm properly fueled. Uh, I think a lot of people forget that, especially if, if you use your brain for a living, that it's important to give yourself the, the resources and the input you need to perform. Uh, and so that, that's a big one for me, making sure that I'm getting enough protein and that I'm spacing out my meals and I, and I feel like I have enough energy in the tank pretty much at all times. And uh, to, to backtrack a little bit to, you know, we're talking about keystone habits, which ones have the biggest payoff. Well, you could, you could go and level up and go, the most important habit is being able to form habits. Mm. Because if you have that, then everything else is taken care of and mm. you can always make a change. Mm. And I, I would encourage anyone who's either really interested in this space or just diving in to, to think about how they might be able to make a habit of making changes. Mm. What process works well for them. Some people do really, really well with making changes with others. They, they need to have an accountability partner. They need a supportive community of people also driving towards the same change. Some people do really well by putting money down 
and putting someone else in charge of donating that money to a, an organization they hate or, mm-hmm. or that person just gets the money yes. if they don't follow through on their promise. The, the, uh, the drive to have approval from, from those that are close to us and those in our tribe is, is strong with most people. And so that might be a, a process that, that works for, for many. And so that, that's, that's one I've actually been thinking about a lot lately because if you, if you have good habits, eventually you'll get the results that you want. They might not come today or next week or even a year from now, but if you have good habits and you're putting in the work day to day and you're, you're slowly moving in the right direction, eventually you'll get what you want. And so that the skill of being able to create them and, and sustain them is very, very overlooked. And I'm, I'm excited that there's more research coming out on it. There's, there's more money flowing into understanding why it's so difficult and, and how can we make it easier. And when we do trip up, how can we get back on track and on that note, how, how can you make change easier? I know you, building on or do you reinforce any of the points you've already mentioned or is there any kind of secret tip to making change easier? Yeah, I would say if I had to pick one, it would be the environment is a very, very overlooked aspect of habit change. So let's, let's say we're trying to cut a bad habit of eating sugar. So... For whatever reason, you're going on a diet or you're going a little more extreme and you're just cutting it out completely. That's your goal. Well, it's going to be a lot easier to stick to that if there's no sugar around you. If there's no sugar at home, there's no sugar at work, there's no sugar available whatsoever. Because even if you have a craving, if you, for some reason, uh, just are, are really really desiring sugar, you can't actually act on that because your environment is set up to basically predict that you're going to fail ahead of time and make it impossible that you'll fail. Uh, and, and conversely, if you're trying to establish a new habit, the environment's also very important. So for, for someone trying to establish a new habit of trying to play the guitar every day. Well, put the guitar in the middle of your living room so that it's accessible. So that you see it and you remind yourself, oh, I, I want to be learning more guitar and I want to get better at that. Or if you're trying to make a habit of taking vitamins every day, take the vitamins and put them right next to the fridge or right next to wherever you walk every single morning so you see them and then you remind yourself, oh, I need to take my vitamins. So that's a, that's a, a couple of little examples of how the environment or what you're exposed to really, really has a strong impact on the types of habits that we choose to engage in. Yes. Because 90% of the time, unless we're really, really thinking about something, we're just on autopilot. We're, we're unconsciously going about our day and, and executing on the habits that we have. And you know, depending on what's available in the moment or what's easiest in the moment, we're, we're going to make choices that are different. 
And so if, if I had to pick one, it, it would be that. It would be from, a, from an environmental perspective, have you set up your environment to make this habit more likely to happen? That, that's if you're trying to create some, a new habit. Or if you're trying to bust a bad habit, have you set up your environment to make it way more difficult and way less attractive to do that thing? I like that. It's the, the one-two punch of remove any temptations that you might come across in your day-to-day and, and then replace that or, or put in place uh, with whatever you want to be doing and to make it easily accessible for you and ready to go. That's great. I like that. So, so Lucas, I guess the final question I have, um, really appreciated all your insights and the, your, your tips that you shared here. I guess if you, if you had to synthesize everything down, into everything that you know about behavior change, everything you know about learning how to make behavior change and forming habits. And someone had to sit down with you and they had a chance, they only had 30 seconds with you and they said, Lucas, what's one thing I need to uh, unlearn? What's a myth? What is a myth about behavior change that I've probably been hanging on to I need to let go of or realize it's just a myth? And on the flip side, What's one truth that I need to face? Even if it's uncomfortable, if I want to be making a change, what's the one truth that I need to face? What would you say is the one myth and one truth? I think the, the biggest myth is if you're trying to make a change that is any bit substantial, it's not just a small change like start brushing your teeth. You're actually going to have to invest and it's going to be difficult. The, the one myth is that you can do that by just saying it's different now. I'm just going to start doing this and it's all going to work out because in reality, if you don't do any work to change the identity that you have, the identity that's going to influence how likely you are to actually do that thing or not do that thing, you're going to be fighting the tide. You're going to be swimming in the opposite direction because even though you've said I want to do this a bunch of other aspects of who you are and a bunch of things that you think and hold dear are still flowing in the opposite direction and ultimately there's tension that won't be resolved and at some point maybe you start traveling or work gets crazy you will let up. You won't be able to sustain that habit anymore and you'll go back to where you were before. So that's, that's the one myth that I would say is most overlooked but is so fundamental to making any change, whether it's habit-based or it's a, it's a way that you think about the world, any change you're considering making. And the, the one truth that I would, I, I think it's easier to illustrate this using an example. Have, have you ever heard of the story of Buridan's ass before? Mm, not by title. Enlighten okay. me. Okay. Uh, it's the story of a donkey who is sitting in the middle of a barrel of hay and a bowl of water. He's, he is equidistant from the barrel of hay on his right and the bowl of water on his left. And he is also equally hungry and equally thirsty. 
So he's, he's at an impasse. He has to make a decision about which one he wants. Does he want the food? Does he want the water? What do you think he does? He probably gets stuck and doesn't move. He gets stuck and doesn't move and dies of both thirst and starvation. And it's a, it's a fun philosophical metaphor to, to play with, but in reality, everybody could quickly get to the conclusion that he could have very easily gone to the hay, ate something, satisfied that desire, and then turned around and moved over and gotten some water. And I think that's the same thing with making changes. Most people assume that I have to do all these things at once or I have to make a big change or it's not worth it or I'm, I'm worried about what other people are going to think about me if I'm not actually making a substantial shift. But in reality, doing things one at a time is, in my opinion, the best way to build habits that are going to last, to get to the results that you ultimately want long-term because you can always go get water and, and satisfy that urge after. You can always start with one thing, maximize your chances of succeeding and making sure it's now a new part of your identity and then just move on to the next most important thing. Mm. Right? You, can, you can constantly have a number one priority and then once that is covered you can go back to your list and assign a new number one versus most people have depends on how ambitious they are or how how thinly spread they are most people have at least five sometimes over ten highest priority things that they want to be doing and changing and ultimately it it's very hard to move them all forward in one direction and, and make them all sustainable over time that's that's a big thing that's important here because endemic to the definition of habit is that it becomes automatic that it eventually becomes a part of you it becomes something you do without even thinking and it's very hard to get to that point if you're also focused on making a bunch of other things yes. habits or you're not consistently getting it done daily or with whatever frequency you've you've set and uh, it's successful in your mind. That's great, Lucas. I really appreciate all your wisdom that you share here today. And if, if any of the listeners here want to get in touch with you or learn more from you, what would be the best way to reach out? What's the best way to, to follow you or get a hold of you? Best way would be uh, email, just uh, lucas.miller at berkeley.edu. Or Twitter is also a, a channel that I'm on pretty frequently. And the the username is at Lucas Allen, A-L-A-N, Miller. Right. All right, Lucas, great to speak with you. We'll speak again soon. Sounds good. It was, it was great being on. Cheers. That was Lucas Miller, cognitive scientist. You can find the links to all of his contact details in our show notes. We want you to get the most of the time you invest in listening here. This show is only valuable if you apply what you've learned, and most learning is generated from reflection. So we'd love to hear from you and your reflections about what you learned or found interesting. Join the community and go to theignitionshow.com slash connect. That's theignitionshow.com slash connect. And let us know what struck you and what was it that you heard today 
that you really needed to hear today. You can leave us an audio message or join our Facebook group and participate in the conversation there, where we'd love to hear your comments and follow-up questions. Also, be sure to check out the after show of this episode. That's the shorter follow-up episode where we, that's my wife and business partner, Sarah and I, talk about what we learned from this interview and how these ideas have shown up in our lives on a more personal level. As always, if you like what you hear, subscribe, rate the show, or leave a review in iTunes. It helps others find us and helps us get better. We actually read every single review and comment that comes through iTunes, Facebook, and our website and respond to as many people as we can. And lastly, remember, whatever you dream of, whatever you hope for, and secretly wish you had, you're closer than you think you are, you're meant to have it, and you deserve it. Until next time, I'm Chris Jansen, and this is The Ignition Show.